Insidious Playground, a podcast by the Leadership Foundation, and you are listening to a very special holiday podcast, our gift to you as we talk about Advent and prayer through poetry. And what do you know about that, Dave? You, that was a beautiful introduction, Rick. <laughs> I forgot to say who you were. I'm Rick Enlow, the co-host, and this is Dave Hillis, president of Leadership Foundation. But yeah, Dave, this I'm looking forward to this holiday gift because I know that prayer and poetry are not really two different words. You know, I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> uh, they're first cousins. So that's right. Uh, that's right. It's, it's not, you know, I, a lot of this, I think, um, uh, is reflected and not only uh, in, uh, you know, current practice and even our, the tradi- traditions uh, uh, that, that reflect Advent and incarnation, but all the way back, um, certainly in, in the New Testament. Um, and I think, one of the pinnacles is this idea when Paul writes uh, and talks about, um, you know, the, the church in Ephesians. So, you know, yep. that direction. Yeah. He, uh, you know, Paul is kind of trying to describe, you know, the works, the workmanship that God is creating in both the people of God and individuals. But in the Greek language, uh, the, the word he reaches for is, is poema which is where we get our English word poem. And so a rough translation would be that, you know, in effect, what God is in the business of doing is creating poems in this world. Mm-hmm. That when we encounter one another, what we're encountering are, you know, each other's poetry. And the idea then that <clears throat> we're also co-creators, Rick, means that in effect, to do the work of God uh, is to continue uh, to help, sort of co-write this poetry with God moving forward. So it's a, it's a marvelously kind of pregnant word that I think has, has all kinds of ramifications. Now, of course, here's the interesting thing. Uh, having known that, uh, I will be the first to admit that didn't necessarily make me sprint to poems themselves. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was one of those, you know, high school college uh, students that when you when you got to that section in English that you had to read poetry it was like oh sweet Jesus Mary mother of God you know you know help <laughs> yeah, me well, get I, through this I think a lot of us can relate because there there are so many um, I guess well the, you know sort of subgenres in poetry there's so yeah. many different dynamics yeah. so many different authors so many different um, even forms, even, you know, official sure. forms of poetry, but it's not that a poem in most cases is just, um, you know, it's just words on a paper, but it's, it's a complete, um, you know, journey, you know, yeah. you know, and so I think that's what would have been helpful in high school, wouldn't it, Dave, for yeah. somebody to give us the, the, the <clears> absolutely. <laughs> but, but certainly when we think about God um, writing poetry, it does kind of make sense or it resonates to me because how many people have we met and we didn't really understand them? That's exactly you know, right. Because we didn't have an appreciation. And I think yeah. that for us to, to think that somehow we can appreciate art yeah. just like because we're alive. I mean, we need some help. Yeah. And most of the time it, it really doesn't hurt to talk to the artist. <laughs> that's, you know? right. that's right. <laughs> and I think that's what uh, the Apostle yeah. Paul is helping us understand in that, in that reference for sure. 
Yeah, you know, and it's, I mean, of course, you know, we can talk more about this, but once you, you know, kind of say yes to this thing called poetry, then things like the book of Psalms open up, right, in new yeah. and fresh ways. Um, you know, there's been an argument made that the book of Psalms, as understood as poetry, was the first declaration of what it meant to be human because of the range of emotions by which yeah. it covered. Um, so it, it, yeah, I mean, you really can't, you know, I think think about the Bible very well if you don't begin to figure out this thing called poetry. But anyways, the funny story about this episode, Rick, is that I uh, <clears throat> have told people, and you know this, Rick, that I'm, I was the first non-Catholic, non-Irish, of course, before I became Catholic, to marry in to the Coogan family. And if you know anything about Irish Catholic mother-in-laws, uh, yeah. they are, uh, they are uh, a species unto themselves. And so <laughs> my, uh, my mother-in-law, one wet, cold, gray uh, Wednesday night in November, calls me last minute, as is her habit. <clears throat> and she says, hey, do you, uh, do you want to go to this prayer and poetry thing at St. Leo's Church here in Tacoma? Which... Of course, it was the last thing that I wanted to do, but I negotiated quickly thinking about future Thanksgiving dinner tables, Christmas tables, and how they would go much easier if I pleased my, uh, my mother-in-law this night. Yeah. And of course, for those of us, for those of our listeners that aren't from the Northwest, you know, November in the Northwest, it's wet, it's cold, it's miserable. And so I'm just going to sort of just kind of go over there, make a bit of a, a drive-by, and then and get out, come in. And, of course, there's this wonderfully bad coffee that St. Leo's was offering, um, and there was about 30 chairs. We sat down, and Father Steve Lantry, SJ, stands up, and he uh, says, well, tonight, you know, he says, we're going to spend about an hour and a half <clears throat> where I'm going to read some poems that have helped me pray better. Mm -hmm. And uh, he quickly told a story about his own entry into this, where he said, here I was a Jesuit at the age of you know, 50 plus years, and I wasn't praying very well. And he said, whatever else the job description was of a Jesuit, I figured it probably had something to do with prayer. So he says, I'm looking for anything that's gonna help me you know, do that. And so he uh, goes into a bookstore, I think, you know, Dalton's back in the day when there were still bookstores like yeah. that around. And he said he grabbed <clears throat> a volume of Auden, right, who's sitting at the beginning of the poetry section, and a volume of Yeats at the end. <clears throat> and he sat down to pray. And he uh, prayed the first couple of poems of Auden, wasn't feeling much, and he got to the third poem, and he just became overwhelmed. Um, so he says back to us in that audience that night, he says, so I'm going to just uh, talk to you about some of these poems now that have really become something important to my soul. And again, Rick, I mean, in all honesty, I'm just waiting for this is going to be an absolute yawner. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm just going, how do, how do I get through this next hour and a half? At the second poem, he says, by the way, I'm going to read from The Poet. And it, you know, caused me pause. And I said, what do you mean there's uh, a, you know, The Poet? I mean, I mm -hmm. thought there were lots of poets. 
And at that point, he uh, he read a poem from Rumi, um, the famous, uh, you know, Sufi mystic, uh, and it hit me like a bomb. I just, I, I mean, I, I physically found myself kind of shaking a little bit um, of, of just being overwhelmed by these words in this short, short quatrain that, uh, that Steve read, read from. <clears throat> Again, not to overstate this, but for the next hour and 40 minutes, I felt like I lost contact with this world and got caught up in a space with regard to the power of poetry and what it can actually mean. And that the poems, in fact, became my prayers, right? I, I, I didn't have to pray or try to figure out how to augment the poem with my prayers. The poems themselves spoke so deeply to my sense of the world, reality, who God was, who humankind was, that I was just taken up. Well, that, Rick, began the uh, I think it ended up being 20 straight poetry and prayer uh, deals that Steve hosted at uh, at St. Leo before he moved to Missoula. Uh, I never missed one. Um, and the most powerful thing about it in many ways uh, is were certainly the poems. But then Steve would take maybe a minute and just make a few comments about the way that that particular poem contributed uh, to his prayer life. And it's just been one of the most transforming things that I have ever lived through. So one of my great passions has been uh, trying to introduce the LF network um, to this prayer and poetry thing that's been so important to me. So mm -hmm. um, it was very fun for me to be able to, to bring Steve Lantry, who of course, along with this special gift has been uh, you know, my spiritual director, my priest, um, you know, pastor to the Hillis family. I mean, I, it's it's hard to overstate um, his importance uh, to me, uh, but it's been wonderful. I think the final little thing I would just say by way of introduction is that it's also probably responsible for my, uh, my current job. Um, so I'm, uh, I've been asked to take uh, Reed Carpenter's place um, I do not want to do that. I think I've said this before on podcasts that the idea of following Reed would prove to me once and for all that there had to be such a thing as purgatory. Um, <laughs> you know, Reed is such a large, gigantic personality that, I mean, to follow into that shadow would just be crazy. So Steve and I are actually talking about that one day and having a cigar together. And Steve said, well, uh, how, how's it going? And I said, well, you know, I'm pretty good, but I've, I've come to a clear decision. And the decision is that I'm not going to do it. And uh, Steve said, took a long, long drag of his cigar. He said, I don't think you're saying no to the job. I think you're saying yes to your fear. <laughs> and I think you need to pray a bit more about it. Well, I go back, and by this time, he had, of course, completely converted me to poetry, and I just happened to pick up a poem by 
one of my ma- my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, mm-hmm. uh, and it's called A Dream of Trees. And so let me let me read it because I think I hope this will give our, our readers a little bit of a sense of the power of uh, poetry and in a very practical way, you know, how it can actually make your life <laughs> do a zig instead of a zag. So she yeah. says this. There is a thing in me that dreamed of trees, a quiet house, some green and modest acres a little way from every troubling town, a little way from factories, schools, laments. I would have time, I thought, and time to spare with only streams and birds for company to build out of my life a few wild stanzas. And then it came to me that so was death, a little way from everywhere. There is a thing in me that still dreams of trees, but let it go, homesick for moderation. Half the world's artists shrink or fall away. If any find solution, let him tell it Meanwhile, I bend my heart toward lamentation, whereas times implore our true involvement. The blades of every crisis point the way. And it's this last line, Rick, that just sealed the deal. I would were not so, but so it is. Who ever made music of a mild day? Yeah, and I, I I still remember exactly where I was sitting, and I had every sense now that this poem captured this sense that I you know I'm dreaming of trees. I'm trying yeah. to get out there and just have a couple modest acres, a little way from everywhere. <laughs> but she then so wonderfully just says, "But it came to me, so that too was death." And then just that lovely, lovely idea: I would it were not so, but so it is. Who has ever made music of a mild day? Yeah, I recognize that ultimately, even in the midst of all of my fears, you know what I want is to be able to make music, right? To help yeah. people sing, to help people sense a bit of joy in their life. So that was Steve Lantry and this poem that pushed me into this job that I've now been in for the last eleven years. Yeah, well, we are thankful for that uh, epiphany at the time. And, and, you know, the, the interesting thing I think about uh, poetry, especially in, you know, as you've described it, is that um, you can't subtract Steve Lantry. I mean, he, he is the father poet, you know I mean? And he, I think that the, the, um, the idea that you, um, can appreciate architecture, but even more so with the architect. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. you know, uh, helping you. I think that's what Steve has done. I know you introduced me and we had the chance to have a meal together. And I mean, it was just, um, he's just a gift. So as our gift during this Advent, this very unusual Advent 2020, let's just sit back and, and just enjoy uh, this mm. conversation and really this teaching from Father Steve Lantry. Wonderful. Let me, uh, so let me address two things at the beginning because it's, the title is Praying with Poetry. So let me say something first about prayer and then something about poetry. 
Uh, for about half of the years I was at St. Leo, my assistant was uh, a very good friend, a Jesuit, Father Jim Harbaugh. And uh, Saturday morning was different from any other day of the week. Uh, we would get up and have breakfast. Uh, usually I would pray before I ate, but on Saturdays I wouldn't. So we finished breakfast and I made a second cup of coffee and uh, I was walking out of the kitchen and I said, I'm going upstairs to pretend to pray. And uh, without even turning toward me over his shoulder, Jim said, it counts just as much as the real thing. Uh, that was typical of Jim, the kind of thing he would say. But there was a profound truth about that. The most important thing about prayer is simply showing up. You know, there are a lot of different physical postures people take to pray. There are a lot of different practices. Some people use formal prayers. Other people use their own words. Some people simply sit in silence. For others, they have to be outdoors in among trees and mountains and rivers. So none of that matters. What matters is that it's a practice that works for the individual person and, uh, and that there's something regular about it. This is one of my favorite stories about prayer. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of you saw the movie Shadowlands, which is based on C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. Remember he married very late in life a woman who had been married before and had a 10-year-old son, an American scholar, poet. And she got bone cancer very soon after they were married. And there was the usual two, three years roller coaster with that disease. And then she died. And uh, in the wake of his grief, Lewis writes this book, A Grief Observed. In the film, he's played by Anthony Hopkins. And during a change in classes, the halls are full of students, and he runs into this one other teacher who is his closest friend. And the friend says, aren't you coming to lunch? And Lewis says, no, I'm going to the chapel to pray. And his friend says, oh, yes, of course, I, I suppose it helps. And then with this absolutely fierce intensity, Lewis says to his friend, no, it doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. I don't pray because it helps. I pray because it changes me. I think that's finally why uh, we need to pray. Not ought to, but why we need to pray. Because over time, it changes us. Um, it almost doesn't matter. Well, it does, but almost doesn't matter what our image of God is. The big thing is that making ourselves available to that presence is a way of being changed. So uh, uh, why poetry with prayer? Well, there are a lot of facets to that question. Um, you remember uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet, once observed that prose is the best words in good order, but poetry is the best words in the best order. There's something very 
condensed and concentrated about poetry. It is an undiluted form of language, at least when it's good, that's true of it. But one of my favorite things, uh, observations about poetry is from W.H. Auden. He says it can do uh, a thousand things. It may express every possible shade of emotion. It may describe every conceivable kind of event, but there is one thing all poetry must do. It must praise all it can for being and for happening. Now that might strike people as an odd notion that the main objective of poetry is to praise. I guess it depends on how you think about the word praise. So having said this, having a somewhat elevated language, let me read a couple of poems to you that uh, pull the rug out from under language. It's important to remember that no matter uh, what God we believe in, we are entirely dependent on images. We have to have images. We're an imaging creature, human beings are. So here are two poems by the great 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi that cover this ground quite well. First one is very short. He says, the images found in human language do not correspond to me, but those who love words must use them to draw near. I think that's wonderful, a wonderful way of approaching praying with different poems. If you have a love of words, uh, they can be used to draw near. No metaphor, no image is ever going to be even close to exhaustively descriptive of the God of our understanding. But if we love language, if we care for it and care for its careful use, then we can use it to draw near. Here's another poem from Rumi, one of my favorites uh, about what poetry is really about. He says this, my poems resemble the bread of Egypt. One night passes over them and you can't eat them anymore. So gobble them down now while they're still fresh before the dust of the world settles on them. Where a poem belongs is here in the warmth of the chest. Out in the world, it dies of cold. You've seen a fish Put it on dry land, it quivers for a few moments, and then it's still. And even if you eat my poems while they're still fresh, you still have to bring forward many images yourself. Actually, my friend, what you're eating is your own imagination. I think it's one of the truest things ever said, not just about poetry but about any form of prayer, any form of genuine communication. What we're consuming is our own imagination. We know that uh, the reality of God far surpasses whatever we can imagine, but in using language, we are able to draw near.
me just do a couple of others. Two more poems by Rumi. Invoking your name does not help me to see you. I'm blinded by the light of your face. Longing for your lips does not bring them any closer. What veils you from me is my vision of you. Now, I think that's extraordinarily important. If any one of us can say to God, what, <clears throat> what veils you from me is my vision of you. The emphasis falls on the limitation of our vision, whatever it is. We all know that there, uh, there is a great variety of gods that are worshiped by people, even in our own Christian tradition. Uh, there are a lot of different looking gods, and not all of them are very helpful to us. But it's a good reminder that what veils the reality of God for me, first and foremost, is my vision of that God, the image that dominates my praying. You know, in the Islamic tradition, uh, when people go to the mosque, and even if they're not in a mosque, even if they're at home during the prayer times of the day, they kneel down and they kiss the ground and they do this repeatedly. It is their devout custom. Rumi says this, <clears throat> today, like every other day, we wake up empty and scared. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. I love that line most of all. Let the beauty we love be what we do. If we take the incarnation seriously, and in our tradition, we are supposed to do that, then the beauty we love has to be incarnated somehow in the way we live our lives, and most of all, in the way we relate to other people. It seems to me that the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels makes that abundantly clear. Um, Rumi. He dies the year before Thomas Aquinas, uh, just to pull, just to be a name dropper. He was a brilliant religious scholar in his own tradition, but he was also exposed to Christianity, Hinduism. Uh, I think he knew a little something about uh, what we would call uh, the Buddhist tradition. Uh, he became an extraordinary mystic and by a mystic, I mean, he, he was brought, he, no one accomplishes this on his or her own. He was brought to uh, an intimacy with the God of his understanding that exploded in these poems. I mean, his collected works uh, contain tens of thousands of lines and most of them are the result of his mystical experience. So some people might be concerned that he was Muslim and, you know, not Christian. 
but that's hardly relevant. Uh, there's only one God, and as long as that God is being worshipped, that's the important thing. But Rumi was able, by using language, to share uh, many angles of entrance into this mystical experience. And that has proven to be the most attractive thing to me. I'm not a mystic, not, not even remotely close. And I think most of us would say that we're not mystics. But to have access to someone's experience like that is to look for resonances, is to look for evocations in our own experience. That's what he does for me. So let me iterate again that the thing about praying is that there is no ought, uh, no should about the shape. It really depends on the individual person. The point, as one of my Jesuit friends in California says, he's talking about 12-step meetings. He said, all we need to do is show up, take our turn, tell the truth. That's a great way of approaching prayer. So here's a prayer, here's a poem by Mary Oliver that's simply called Praying. She says, it doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. Just pay attention and patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. You know, that poem is only about 10 lines, but it is dense with meaning. So it's about paying attention to the other, just paying attention, whether we say anything or not. We can patch a few words together. They don't have to be elaborate. They don't have to be fancy or anything special. And then this isn't a contest. That's particularly good advice for Americans, don't you think? You know, we who compete no matter what we're doing. It's not a contest. Rather, it's a doorway. It's a way into thanks. There's Auden's thing about praise again. And a silence in which another voice may speak. I think uh, a lot of us uh, are suspicious of our own prayer practice because we think God doesn't speak to us. Well, if we expect God to speak to us like the teller at the bank or the person at the checkout register in the supermarket, or even a member of our family, we're bound to be disappointed. That speaking is not always done with words. It's done with movements in the heart. So she gives great advice about praying. One more poem by Mary Oliver about this, about why we're here 
and what we're supposed to be doing. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locusts, equally the beeches, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me, the trees stir in their leaves and they call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world for this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. Again, a wonderful poem and amazingly dense. How many of us walk uh, in a park or in a forested area and notice that the trees give off hints of gladness? What a marvelous phrase that is. Mary Oliver knew how to pay attention when she was in the natural world. And then this shift, I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly. Nothing gets in the way of our prayer like thinking about how inadequate we are, incomplete. Uh, nothing gets in the way more than that because we feel we're not doing it right or we're not doing it the way it ought to be done. It's so hard to be kind to ourselves in this area. And then she gives us a message from the trees. Stay a while. That's paying attention. That's showing up. That's hanging out. It's simple. You too have come into the world for this, to go easy, to be filled with light, and to shine. Well, if we're going to be filled with light, we have to be open to absorbing it. And that means making ourselves available to the source of light in our lives. It means slowing down. It means to be less concerned with getting ahead or caring for ourselves or even others and simply being available to the one who has made us. For me, this is another great thing about using a poem for prayer uh, because the lines of the poem act like a mantra. So we're all familiar with sitting down and planning to pray and or pay attention. And we immediately encounter what the Buddhists call monkey mind, you know, suddenly there are a thousand thoughts and concerns and worries and etc. And we start going through all of that stuff. The lines of a poem act as an anchor. They pull us back into that very present moment. 
Because when we get concerned about the other things in our lives, we've stepped out of the present moment. We've either moved back into the past or we're trying to get into the future and deal with something. And whatever else prayer is about is it's an attempt to be present. That's really what paying attention means. Uh, I mean, my mind is as much a monkey as anybody else's. And uh, early in my time of using poems for prayer, I found that they tied me down to the present moment. So again, it's not about doing it right or doing it in a specific way. It's an attempt to be present so that out of that silence, another voice may speak. So what I would say is reading first and then praying with poetry uh, gave me language, gave me imagery to describe interior experience, thoughts, feelings. It gave me ways of reinterpreting past experience. Uh, so it deepened my understanding of my own life. Here's a poem by Kabir who lived about a century after uh, St. Ignatius. He was, uh, he was Muslim, of course, but he was from the holy city of Benares in India. I love this poem because it kind of captures uh, the essential difference between people whose religious practice actually transforms their hearts and other people for whom simply observing the forms, the rules, the laws, is their practice. So here's the Kabir poem. Have you heard the music that no fingers enter into? Far inside the house, entangled music, the body, that's the house. What is the sense of leaving your house? Suppose you scrub your ethical skin until it shines, but inside, there is no music, then what? Muhammad's son pours over words and points out this and that, but if his chest is not soaked dark with love, then what? The yogi comes along in his famous orange robe, but if inside he is colorless, then what? Kabir says this, every instant that the sun is risen, if I stand in the temple or on a balcony, in the hot fields or in a walled garden, my own Lord is making love with me. So here's a poem about um, the obstacles we encounter in ourselves 
to any kind of experience of or union with God. This is another poem by Rumi, and it's called Bismillah, Bismillah, which means in the name of God. He says this, it's a habit of yours to walk slowly. You hold a grudge for years. With such heaviness, how can you be modest? With such attachments, do you expect to arrive anywhere? So, be wide as the air to learn a secret. Right now, your equal portions clay and water, thick mud. Abraham learned how the sun and moon and the stars all set, and he said, no longer will I try to assign partners for God. You are so weak. Give up to grace. The ocean takes care of each wave till it gets to the shore. You need more help than you know. You're trying to live your life in open scaffolding. Say Bismillah in the name of God, like a priest does with a knife when he offers an animal. Bismillah, your old self, to find your real name. That's a pretty, uh, pretty sharp-edged poem. Uh, I think we'd all agree to that. And I think we're familiar with the experience of carrying grudges and being resentful and how it makes it impossible for us to be humble. And with those attachments, it's hard to get any place. And then this wonderful, this wonderful image that he says uh, a secret that we need to learn. We're equal portions clay and water, thick mud. I don't know about you, but I've had many, many experiences, some of them lasting years, where I felt like I was trying to walk through mud in my life. And then this wonderful image, what, a, what an image of consolation. The ocean takes care of each wave until it gets to the shore. A wonderful image of God's constant care for us, whether we're aware of it or not. And then uh, one of my favorites, we all need more help than we know because we're trying to live our lives in open scaffolding. And then this very sharp image, say in the name of God to our old self in order to find our real name. Whenever I read this, I remember uh, the line from the book of Revelation, my least favorite book in the New Testament where the lamb gives a stone to each one of the elect and it has their real name on it. And of course, they recognize it as soon as they see it because it's their real name. We all have a real name. And one of the purposes of any kind of prayer practice is to be available so that the Lord might reveal to us who we actually are as persons what we actually look like, instead of imposing uh, our own oughts and shoulds upon that. So one more poem in this short section. Now this is humorous, and I think uh, 
if anyone wants to be a religious person and doesn't have a sense of humor, they're going to do more harm than good to themselves and to other people. So this is by Hans Ostrom, a former parishioner of St. Leo, teacher of English at the University of Puget Sound. And he calls this poem, Theology and Banking. I think you'll identify with a lot of things. He tried to confess his sins to a bank. He told the teller about his specific enactments of sloth, lust, deception, cruelty. Did he have an account, she asked. Everyone, he replied, has an account in heaven. Would he step aside to let the next person in line advance, she asked. Yes, he said. But first I need to withdraw forgiveness, quite a lot of it. She summoned security who said they would have to ask him to leave. He said he would have to ask them to forgive him. They said they excused him. No, not excuses, he said, forgiveness. They took him to the door and beyond. He wandered to a church and deposited some money. May I have a receipt, he said. Yes, a liturgical minister replied and gave him a wafer, a sip of wine. He ate and drank the receipt. Will you tell me my current balance, he asked. Yes, the minister said, you are, like everyone else, overdrawn. So I wouldn't push it. Go now and sin much more frugally if sin you must, and apparently you must. So it's very, the least thing you could say about the poem is it's very clever, but it also is beautifully human. There's a great tenderness in it uh, and a great sense of longing. It's a great poem to sit with in that way. So some people's image of God, we, we tend to have this when we're younger for Christians. We see God as, uh, you know, the scorekeeper, the one who's watching our missteps and noting them all down, and that eventually we're going to have to answer for these. So it's a God that we view suspiciously because we think God is suspicious of us. So that would be an image. Uh, that kind of constrains uh, my imagination, if that's the way I see God. On the other hand, just to move to the other end of the spectrum, <clears throat> if I see God as uh, endless goodness, Rumi puts it this way, uh, for 60 years I've been unfaithful, and yet not for one second has this flowing toward me ceased or slowed this flowing toward us. It never ceases, it never slows. Uh, to see God that way is to see God as a constant fount of gifts. form sentences after Father Landry <laughs> has been speaking, but uh, we do, 
uh, like to close our episode and especially this this uh, little gift episode during Advent with uh, a recommendation on something that helps us see the city more clearly as God would see it. So Dave, why don't you recommend something for us Yeah, this, this time? Well, you know, again, I think for many of our, our uh, listeners, this what we just experienced might have been a first and they're probably still processing it. Uh, but my strong recommendation would be uh, for everybody to find maybe just one poet uh, that they can befriend. Uh, there are so many out there that speak with such different perspectives and voices. I am absolutely convinced that if somebody is interested, there is a poet awaiting them. And so to find her or him and, uh, like I said, befriend them, uh, make them a part of your uh, daily, weekly uh, sort of work on your interior life, uh, allow them to have you help you find uh, your own prayer voice, uh, because we certainly need um, that in these days we're living in. So that would be my recommendation, Rick. Everyone find a poet. That's that's a uh, that's a bow on the gift, Dave, for our Advent uh, special. So uh, thank you very much, and uh, and Merry Christmas, and Happy Merry Christmas. Advent and and uh, and looking forward to, uh, to to further conversations and amazing uh, guests on our podcast. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. See you next time, Dave. Okay.